We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by former Taipei Foreign Correspondents Club President Jane Rickards. Good evening, Gavin. And Taipei-based reporter Klaus Badenhagen, who covers the island for German media. Hi, Gavin. Tonight, we discuss the suspension of trade talks with the United States, a possible new government immigration policy aimed at Southeast Asian nationals, pollution, free public transport in Kaohsiung, and plans to expand the local pro baseball league but of course we'll have to begin this week with pro-democracy activist Li Mingzhe being sentenced to five years in prison by a court in China's Hunan province on charges of subversion of state power. Now here in Taiwan the Tsai administration is calling for his release as is Washington but of course China is saying very little but is accusing Taiwan of failing to respect Beijing's existing social system and also of trying to impose its political ideals on China. And a spokesperson for China's Taiwan Affairs Office this week said that the facts surrounding Li's case were clear and the government in Taiwan is simply choosing to ignore those facts, which he said could damage cross-strait relations. Now, of course, Taipei has also said that Li Mingzhe being sentenced could damage cross-strait relations, as has Washington. But, of course, he was sentenced to five years. So five years, Jane, did the five-year sentence come as a surprise? Were you expecting a heavier sentence or a more lenient sentence? Um, it didn't come as a surprise to me. Um, I didn't have any sort of figure in my mind about how long or how short the sentence would be, but I was fairly sure that he would be sentenced to prison. Um, another thing I would say is if China says the facts are clear, then why can't China make the facts clear for everyone? Because this is a very murky case. So I think China's got a gall telling Taiwan that um, the facts are already clear because no one has a clue what's going on. Um, for example... Um, with the law governing foreign NGOs, it isn't really clear whether his arrest is related to that or not. Um, another thing is exactly what he did. No one's very clear about that. What do you think, Klaus? What, don't you think they might be interested in keeping it murky like that so no one knows if he is um, in danger as well? If he ever wrote anything China-critical on, on Facebook, on China's social media, and the next time he visits China, maybe he will get arrested, maybe he won't. Maybe they are interested in keeping it kind of... Unclear. Of course, that was one of the things that came did come up actually. That the fact that he apparently he he was he was use a stupid word here. He was disseminating information to China on the internet on microblogging sites, etc., etc. But of course, apparently he was doing this in Taiwan, which opens a very dangerous hole. Means anyone that goes on the internet and types in "China sucks" and they happen to travel to China technically could face subversion of state charges. Yes, that's absolutely correct, Gavin. And in fact, I think that highlights um, another problem with um, saying this: or his arrest is connected to um, the law governing foreign NGOs, because if you actually look at the wording of the law, it says it governs the activities of NGOs in China, and China is defined as Zhongguo, not the People's Republic of China. So you don't really know if that includes Taiwan and Hong Kong or just China. 
and then it says the, the defines a foreign NGO as an NGO operating outside China's borders or Jingwai. So it's actually um, legal experts would probably know this. I think it's very unclear whether um, the foreign NGO law would actually apply to Taiwanese NGOs. And China, as we all know, has defined Taiwan as part of its territory since 1949. So I guess I suppose to China would make no difference if someone was on Taiwanese soil breaking ta- Chinese law or in, on Chinese soil breaking chi- Chinese law. And so you already have Taiwanese legislators now um, advising people not to travel to China if it doesn't need to be. So I would be really worried if I was a Taiwanese living in China for business right now, still being in contact with my friends and family in Taiwan over, I know, Facebook, email, whatever. I think um, they will think about, do I need to self-censor myself in the future? Because people, uh, China will be, the, the authorities will be reading what they are writing. They always must consider this possibility at least. There was also the issue that apparently Taiwan nationals in China are considered to be extraterritorial folks. Exactly. And apparently the case didn't actually come up with that. There was some murky area whether Lee was charged as an extraterritorial person or as a Chinese PRC national. Yes, um, it's very murky territory. Um, but getting back to what Klaus said earlier, um, this is why I'm inclined to think it's a very isolated case because one of the main tools China uses to win Taiwan over is economic leverage. You know, sweeteners, economic deals. Um, they want to encourage more Taiwanese business or Taishang, you know, to go to China. So the last thing China really wants is to give Taiwan the impression that anyone who lands at Pudong Airport will be immediately clapped in chains. So um, while this case has rocked Taiwan, and certainly, as Klaus said, it will probably put many Taiwanese off going to China, I don't think that's exactly what China wants to accomplish in terms of its image with Taiwan. And I don't know what Lee did, but I'm inclined to think that he in particular struck a raw nerve and this isn't sort of a tactic to intimidate Taiwan. Do you think that could have something to do, Klaus, with the five-year sentence? Instead of being sentenced to ten years, he gets five years, possibly out and back home within two and a half, three years, if China wasn't trying to send a, to stop Taiwanese people from going to China. I don't know if we need to play a numbers game here. I mean, um, and maybe if they give him a little less strict sentence than they could have, they still have the possibility to escalate it the next time they catch someone. So it's like... They are showing Taiwan the tools in their torture chamber, and now everyone knows what they are capable of using, and um, well, they, they always need to keep options open for the next time they need to escalate tensions. Um, I'm still inclined to think that China's... I agree with Klaus, but I'm still inclined to think that China's trying to send a message to all outsiders, including Hong, Hong Kong activists and foreign activists, not to meddle in so-called um, state subversion, i.e. democratic activities. I'm personally inclined to think this isn't particularly Taiwan-centric. I think Li Minzer was extremely unfortunate um, but I don't think this is a blow aimed at Taiwan. So, do you, I mean that's the speculation right now? But yes. do you, do you think he would have been arrested if the relations would not be in the state that they're in right now, under the under the previous government? Yeah, I think he would have been. But what's absolutely key was that under the pre previous Ma administration, um, the judicial cooperation agreement was in force. So, in other words, Arats, um 
China's negotiating agency would have immediately notified the Straits Exchange Foundation and under the agreement um, it's very likely that Lee could have had a family visit from his wife because they were the terms of the judicial cooperation agreement and I think what's significant about this case is it shows the ramifications of China suspending um, official communication with Taiwan because they're completely um, ignoring the um, edicts of the judicial cooperation agreement as they have for the Kenyan deportees and the um, Cambodian deportees who were allegedly involved in telecom scams Um, and they've just been sent to China by the respective countries and China has completely ignored this judicial cooperation in that case too. I mean, do you think this this case could move cross-strait ties in another direction? As in vis-a-vis more friendly, the government might make moves towards China. It won't obviously admit to the 1992 consensus, but do you think it could step up sort of other channels of talks with Chinese officials? I absolutely don't think so. I think that, um, if anything, the government will go the other way. I think there's sort of pressure on um, the Tsai administration from various... DPP supporters, especially those who respect human rights and the NGO sector, to be more aggressive with China over this or to take a harder line with China. But there's not very much the Tsai administration can do because official communication's already been suspended. However, I think the last thing they're going to do is be more friendly with China. I think it's um, going to be the opposite. And you could see this earlier on in the case um, that when um, Li Mingzhe's wife first tried to go to China and her visa was denied, I think that was when public outrage sort of became quite high. I think this was around May from my memory. And the Tsai administration during that period, they'd tried to be very low-key about it. But in the end, they had no option but to speak up or else lose support. And that was when um, MAC Minister Catherine Jung gave her first comments on the issue. And she held an international press conference. An analyst I spoke to said that Beijing would probably be very upset by that because they don't like Taiwan defining this as an international issue. Um, so if, you follow, if you've been following the Li Minzhe case from the very beginning, earlier this year it seemed to me that the Tsai administration was trying to sort of be low-key about it, but because of the public pressure it couldn't help but say something. So also, Beijing is not offering Taiwan any chance to meet them halfway. I mean, it's mm-hmm. always either 1992 consensus or nothing. So I see no way how they should move towards China right now. Where should they move to? What about calls from Washington for them to release Lee? Do you think he's falling on deaf ears? I, absolutely. Um, I think Washington's made a lot of comments in the past about um, Chinese abuses of human rights, whether it's a Taiwanese citizen involved or someone else. The US doesn't always have marked success in um, securing the release of human rights, people detained in China over human rights issues. Right. And then we shall leave poor Li Mingzhe because he'll be in China for several years and hopefully his family will be able to visit him. Anyway, we'll move on now and talks between Taiwan and the United States under the Bilateral Trade and Investment Framework Agreement are unlikely to take place this year. That being due to Washington's failure to have three posts for deputy representative positions in the U.S. Trade Representative Office actually filled. Now, the Trump administration has apparently named several people for these positions, but Congress has yet to confirm them. Now, the government here in Taipei is insisting that the TIFA talks have only been suspended and not cancelled, while the American Institute in Taiwan says the two sides have been unable to schedule the date for the next TIFA council meeting, as they typically include the deputy U.S. Trade Representative, who has yet to be named. Now, of course, the TIFA talks are a major negotiating channel between Taiwan and the United States that are led by officials at the deputy ministerial level 
people from the two countries. Now, we've just had several years of uninterrupted TIFA talks since they resumed in 2012 after the beef import issue was dealt with. And now they've been suspended again because of another reason. Now, although both sides have said that the reason is because the US trade representatives have yet to be named, there's also talk that possibly it's got something to do with ractopamine in pork. Well, Gavin, yes, um, ractopamine in both beef and pork has been a long-standing issue between the US and Taiwan. It's never been fully resolved. The TIFA talks were suspended from 2008 to 2012 over Taiwan's refusal to admit US beef imports containing ractopamine. So that is a long-standing issue. Um, now, um, ta- um, Taiwan's relatively flexible on US beef imports, so the next... Um, bone of contention, if I may use a pun, <laughs> is um, pork imports containing ractopamine. One reason being, of course, that um, pork is the biggest livestock industry in Taiwan by far, and the beef consumption doesn't play that much of a role. But what could we have expected this time? I mean, would they definitely have uh, put that on the negotiating table, or what, what are we missing out now that the talks won't take place? The funny thing is, there's been, of course, mixed messages from Washington about the pork issue. We've had certain people saying the pork issue won't affect business and trade between the two sides. And we've had, of course, the US pork industry, which has come out and said, hang on a minute, this is a big problem. Um, who's actually been saying the pork issue won't affect business and trade between the two sides? Because I think it will. I think it's one of the sticking points which the two sides need to overcome. Certainly, if Taiwan was to ever move towards a free trade agreement with the US, um, that pork issue would need to be resolved and it would most likely need to be resolved with Taiwan opening up its markets to imports of American pork. But um, getting back to Klaus's other question about what impact this has, um, I think materially this doesn't really have much impact at all. Um, The reason why I say that is um, trade negotiators in America are tied up with um, improving NAFTA or rewriting NAFTA and that's keeping them busy. And then they've got another list of countries they want to work on free trade agreements with or some kind of um, free trade agreements with, including Malaysia and New Zealand. And there are only so many negotiators to go around. So even if this pork issue wasn't in the way or even if they did have an appropriate person to take part in the TIFA talks, the chances are that Taiwan wouldn't be able to talk serious trade with the US, either a free trade deal or which is, or what is more likely a bilateral investment agreement because most people have proposed a bilateral investment agreement as a step towards a free trade deal. That wouldn't be on the agenda for the next few years as the US has other trade priorities and there are only so many negotiators to go around. Also, I think a free trade agreement with Taiwan would not be um, negotiated independently from political considerations. Mm. So if the US would even uh, admit to moving towards negotiations with Mm. Taiwan, this would have a huge political impact and it would all be in the context of US-China relations and who is willing to push it how far. Do you think it could be the cancellation or the suspension of the TV talks could be a bit of a morale buster for the government? Here in Taipei? Um, I don't think so because um, the TIFA talks have already been broken for four years in the past and they've always been on sort of quite shaky ground over um, beef and pork imports. Um, It's true that the government now is more isolated because China is not speaking to it officially and it may be in need of more business ties with the US, but they can also be improved without going through TIFA. 
Right. Like, for example, through the Silicon Valley project. Mm. Anyway, there we shall leave it, and we'll move on to some immigration news. And this week, the Premier said that the government plans to encourage Southeast Asian students currently studying in Taiwan to stay here after they graduate, work, and eventually apply for citizenship. Well, the Premier touted this as saying that the tens of thousands of such students in Taiwan, apparently, and apparently the government plans to set up internships for such students in several sectors to basically persuade them to stay here. Now, he went on to say that this is important for Taiwan because, of course, Taiwan has a labour force shortage problem at the moment. And he also said that this labour force shortage needs to be addressed. And the only way to address it is for the government to actually look at the serious issues of immigration. So immigration, Klaus, obviously you're from Germany. You're a great country for immigration. Lots of people go there. Taiwan, not so hot for immigration. Well, Taiwan and Germany are facing some similar challenges. Basically, um, not enough children being born, and you can already read the numbers and know that in 15, 20 years from now, there won't be enough skilled workers around to to do the kind of work that needs to be done. So, um, yeah, but also both countries, because of cultural or political um, considerations, are skeptical about, or maybe not the countries, but... Uh, sizable proportion of the population is uh, skeptical about throwing the doors open too wide, as they would say. So, yeah, governments in both countries are facing kind of a conundrum here, I guess. Do you think Southeast Asian, it's obviously tied into the new southbound policy, but do you think that, obviously, there's a certain resentment of certain races of people from certain countries here, Jane? Do you think the government's saying, hey, Southeast Asian people, come and get residency in our country? Do you think this could be a backlash? Um, Gavin, I'm more optimistic than um, Klaus on this issue. Um, I think that Taiwanese are ultimately very pragmatic and there is a talent shortage and businesses have been complaining about a talent shortage and I think they will hire who they need to hire to resolve that shortage. And secondly, the alternative to Southeast Asians is letting in hordes and hordes of mainland Chinese, and that's even less acceptable to Taiwanese. And thirdly, as you know, um, I work as a translator as FTV at FTV, and I've noticed increasingly I'm translating reports. For example, they interview um, academics who teach Indonesians. For example, there was one report with an academic who taught Indonesian studies, from my memory, and he was half Taiwanese and half Indonesian, and he was talking about how two decades ago he was facing a lot of racial discrimination, but now his skills are needed for the new southbound policy. And um, in some circles I'm mixed in Taiwan, it's almost cool to sort of be a child of one of those marriages, you know, with a Taiwanese man and a Southeast Asian woman, woman, whereas one or two decades ago, it was almost like mail-order brides. That was the image. But I've, I've actually, I actually think that's changing. So I'm far more positive about that. I don't think there'll be a massive racist backlash against them, although there will be racial frictions, I think, but not a huge racist backlash. Yeah, I mean, that just shows that you, what you need to get rid of is the short-term thinking. I mean, yes. um, proposing a policy right now and then the media one year later already looking for results and if they can't find any they're complaining I mean that just doesn't work you need to think in as you said 20 year time frames here anyway we have to take a short break now but we'll be right back here on Taiwan this week after these important commercials
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin the second half of this show with pollution. Now, on Thursday of this week, Environment Minister Li Yinyuan said that he'll step down from his post if air pollution levels do not drop by 20% by May the 20th of next year. Now, Li went on to say that the government has invested over 200 billion NT in 14 policies, which have been aimed at tackling air pollution. And while he said that he fully understands that the funding won't change things overnight, he went on to say that his office is seeing gradual improvements. Sadly, these comments came after this great, big, messy, smoggy thing covered Taipei City on Wednesday as it floated down the Danshui River from northern Taiwan to engulf most of the city and much of New Taipei. And of course, in Kaohsiung this week, the air quality index registered red warnings nearly every day and people were being advised in parts of Kaohsiung City not to go outside without a face mask and if they had certain physical problems they were being advised to close their windows and not breathe and stay at home basically because that's how bad the pollution was now the environment minister said that he'll take full responsibility for this and resign if the number of days when the air quality index signals red and that does not drop by 20 percent so klaus pollution this week was rather grotty in taipei it was also terrible terrible and the environment minister's put his job on the line pessimist or optimist that he'll have his job come May of next year. For him year. personally, I'm pessimistic because I don't think it's so smart to tie your political future to a six-month time frame. I think he said 20% reduction by May. Yeah. But um, I'm wondering if he steps down, why should only he take the blame? I mean, environment minister is just cleaning up the mess that's being produced elsewhere. Why isn't the Minister of Transportation and the Minister of the Economy also going to step down then? That would seem reasonable. No further comment. Fully agreed with Klaus. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the, the government's trying to tackle pollution. It's, it's told the Taijong power plant, or the Taijong city government told the Taijong power plant, it's a coal-burning power plant, it had to cut coal use by 24% this week, which is quite a lot. And, but the Thai power, of course, has warned that if it cuts coal p- coal use, then its electricity generation will drop. So it's a bit of a quagmire for the government. We've got to cut down on pollution, we've got to stop pollution and then there's traffic of course and cars and the government is doing things to stop this by giving money to people who own diesel trucks and car and vehicles and other cars and things and of course trying to rid the city's streets of two-stroke scooters. But I mean you've been here a long time Jane, do you think it's working? No, I don't. Um, I think it's very difficult. Um, I think there's always the personal door-to-door convenience of your own vehicle, so I think it's very difficult to encourage people to not use cars or not use their beloved scooter they've been using for years. Um, It's just too convenient. I mean, there's one thing we need to talk about is the massive subsidies that the government has been giving out to um, owners of combustion engines forever, basically. I mean, um, China Petrol is a state-owned corporation, and they are keeping the gas prices artificially low. So what you pay at the gas station does not reflect the market prices at all. So there's billions and billions being handed out to owners of cars and scooters all the time. And then people talk about subsidies for buying electric cars maybe being too high. I mean, they're a joke compared to what's happening on the other side. Mm. Of course, the elect- Gogora, of course, is the electric scooter manufacturer here, and they've been trying to promote the use of electric scooters. But, of course, when you compare the price of a Gogoro scooter with a regular scooter, you're going to buy a regular scooter if you want to save money. Yeah, because petrol is too cheap. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking back um, um, to the Kaohsiung's plan to have people use public transportation for free to reduce pollution. I'm wondering whether it would be more effective if they would offer subsidies for electric vehicles like Gogoro scooters. 
possibly, who knows? But the government is offering money. Apparently, for diesel trucks, depending on their size and age, you can get about you can get up to four hundred thousand in tea back. But for a, a two-strokes uh, one of the two-stroke scooters, it's slightly less money. But never mind. Anyway, you mentioned Gao Xiong there, Jane. And of course, yes, Gao Xiong this week did say that it was going to offer its residents free travel on city buses, highway buses and the light rail system. There'll also be four hours a day of free travel on the city's MRT system. That's two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Now, this is all aimed at, according to the Gao Xiong city mayor Chen Zhu to tackle the pollution issue and they want to get people out of their cars off their motorcycles and onto public transport but of course you have to have an e-ticket to do this now this is the first program of its kind in taiwan and the Kaohsiung city government says it'll cost the city about 200 million nt now city transport officials say the program is expected to increase the number of passengers by enough to reduce carbon emissions by 16,000 tons over the three-month period now we've had two figures there klaus we've had 16,000 tons of emissions reduced and it's going to cost city hall in Kaohsiung 200 million nt yeah there you go with the with the money again i mean what does that mean if you want to have people get off the street and get on public transport why not make public transport free for everybody i mean let's just at least think about it you have um, external costs on the other side i mean you have um time lost in, in traffic jams you have the um, environmental impact you have um, health problems but then you talk about 200 nt being paid here i mean who says that an um who says that a metro uh, has to make money who says they have to run a profit it's a public service for everybody yeah. I, I know that's not going to fly with the taiwanese uh, mentality of um, doing business but let's at least talk about this but i mean let's go back to the 200 million nt there jane which is what the gaoshan city government says it's going to cost to do this but i mean do you think do you see it in fact in the long run costing more than 200 million nt and it could it actually harm the city government's books down there i mean could you see the taipei city government doing this Look, I actually could see the Taipei City Government doing that. I don't think governments are so preoccupied with um, budgets as they are with voters. And um, once Kaohsiung set a precedent, and possibly other counties and cities may say, well, if Kaohsiung has it, why can't we? Because people will be talking about the benefits of free public transportation. I spoke to our ICRT's Kaohsiung correspondent, Michael Smith, this week, who... Sadly, he wasn't very optimistic about it. He said that he believes that most people in Kaohsiung will still jump in their cars and motorcycles because they don't have much public transport there. The, M- the MRT is limited, of course. Mm. The tram, the new light rail system, is limited. So, of course, doing this in a city where public transport is limited is slightly different, as in Jane said, to Taipei, Klaus. I mean, that's why if you're really serious about doing anything, you need to make the more socially uh, acceptable version, more attractive, maybe lowering prices for public transport, but you also need to make the other option less attractive, for example, by raising prices for for petrol at the gas station. I mean, it only works with, if you have incentives, but also, what is it, punishments on the other side? What about introducing an idea like they do in London, where you pay London waiting, where cars have to pay to enter certain parts of the city at certain times of the day? Do you think this would work in Kaohsiung, Taipei or Taichung? Well, I think from the technical side, at least, Taiwan would be in a very good position to do that with the e-tax system on the highways. And that's definitely a system that could be expanded on. And with the uh, CCTV cameras everywhere, you could have automatic license plate recognition. I mean, that opens up all other kinds of like data protection issues. I'm not saying personally I would be a big fan of that. 
but um, it would be technically feasible, I guess. Do you think the Taipei City residents would put up with that, paying to drive into the city? I don't think Taipei residents would put up with it at all. It would be very, very inconvenient. It might increase traffic jams at a certain time. And more to the point, Sangwen wants to stimulate Taiwan's economy and it would increase costs for businesses and also make um, traffic jam- the, tr- the re- resulting traffic jams would make things more difficult for business. So I would not recommend this way as a means of solving the pollution problem. Right, there you go. You've got one minute to solve the pollution problem. Jane, how do you do it? I actually think free public transportation is a good idea, believe it or not. Um, I think that... Um, it would encourage more people, less people to use cars. And Klaus, you've got 30 seconds. Do something about energy conservation. Encourage people mm. not to waste energy. Talk about air condition. Um, start with air condition. Start with hot water dispensers. I think all the hot water dispensers in Taiwanese offices mm. use almost as much as one nuclear power plant over the year. I mean, there's so much energy being wasted right now. And before we go this evening, the Chinese Professional Baseball League announced this week that it's had requests by a team from Australia and another team from Japan about joining the island's top baseball bracket. Now, the CPBL currently has four teams, those being the China Trust Brothers, the Lamigo Monkeys, the Uni President Lions and the Fubong Guardians. And it's long sought to expand the number of teams and has solicited help from both the private sector and city governments over the years. However, this has all come to very little. Now, I suppose with Clive Shue of CPBL English about the league's plans to look overseas for new teams. So, Clive, what do you think about this move by the CPBL to look overseas for more teams? Well, Gavin, I think for both fans and the players alike, it's, a, it's an exi- exciting proposition. And I definitely think it's a, it's a good step forward. They're making a good push for it. Um, overseas, in terms of the Cam Vale, the uh, the chief executive for the Australian Baseball League, he visited with CPBL president um, Wu Ziyang last month. His main purpose here was to expand uh, the Australian Baseball League internationally to Japan, to Korea, to Taiwan, and he inquired about um, the re- the policies and the requirements, the guidelines for joining the CPBL. I think that's an excellent move. Um, in terms of Taiwan sending players, there's five, six, there's half a dozen of players playing in their league at this as we speak right now. And um, in the past, they've also sent players here to Taiwan to play as well. The hurdle for them will be um, how that team is constructed. Um, the CPBL has set up guidelines in terms of uh, foreign investment. It can't be more than... Uh, 50% stakeholder share. So the Australian Baseball League would probably find some kind of joint venture with a local company uh, to get into the league that way. The second hurdle will be how they construct their players. Uh, I'm sure uh, ABL's interest includes having many of their own players play in, on the team in the league. Uh, so CPBL, we all know, has a, has a limit of three foreign uh, players on each team. An expansion team, they will allow four players to play, so that's one extra player. That's a uh, that's a uh, allowance that they've given to new teams. But again, you know, I've heard um, proposals where it's a third Taiwan local players, a third Japanese players, a third foreign players. How they actually go about constructing that remains to be seen. Their strong, um, their strength is that it's an uh, it's a very official 
uh, inquiry from the ABL, whereas compared to the Japanese team, it's, it's in the Okinawa prefecture, uh, you know, an island just about an hour's flight away from, from Taiwan. And so their, their uh, proposal is not supported by the government, so it's more of a casual, I think it's more casual compared to the ABL's um, inquiry. Their way into the CPBL will probably be through the Taroko, um Recreation Management Group which operates um, hitting cages. Um, they operate some stores here locally in Taiwan. So that would be their main way into the, into the league. Their biggest hurdle is probably, um, first, they need to get the uh, government support, the government backing. They certainly have uh, the facilities, uh, like the Lamigo Monkeys during spring training each year. They will go there, and they will um, have a couple weeks of spring training there. They'll play the Chiba Latte Marines, who also hold their spring training there. So facilities uh, isn't quite a problem. Their biggest problem will probably be they would like um, to have home field advantage as well on the island of Okinawa, which means that will be an additional expense, a significant one, for teams to actually travel there um, to play home, uh, away games versus the uh, local Okinawa team. So there, there's hurdles for both sides, but I definitely think it's a um, it's a welcome suggestion. So, I mean, how have we ended up here? Like I said in the intro, the, the CPBL has long sought the help of local governments, and several local governments, one of them being in Taipei several years ago, yeah. actually turned around and said, yeah, we'd like to have a team, and we'll talk to companies about sponsoring and in developing a team. But, of course, nothing's happened. I mean, why yeah. do you think nothing's happened at the local level here to put more teams in the CPBL? I think the biggest barrier is definitely um, financial. Um, the league has set up a league fee of 120 million NT, and then you have to put down a guaranteed fee like a security deposit of 360 million NT, which you would get back. That's so that a team doesn't, a company doesn't just dabble in the league and then leave. You'll get back after five years in the league. In addition to that, um, the base the base fee they've uh, required a 100 million operational fee which the CPBL will run 30% of that fee, and the company can um, have 70%. So it's not that you have to have $580 million up front, but you have to have that, uh, that resource available, and you have to be able to prove it. And so that's, you know, that's almost 19, in terms of dollars, 19 to $20 million. On top of that, um, you, know, you have to, when, during the expansion uh, draft, if you sign a player from another team, you have to compensate the other team. So, like, one player is 3 million NT. So if you pick two players each from the four different teams, you're, you're shelling out another 24 million play, uh, NT for eight players. And so for a team that doesn't, for a company that doesn't have an owner that is keenly interested in baseball and willing to kind of just um, shell out some, some, you know, some cash to be able to do this, it probably won't happen. If a company is looking at it as a, um, you know, pluses and minus, um, gains and losses, it's definitely, the first couple of years is definitely more heavier on the loss side because to recuperate and to re- uh, get back that 580 million NT initial investment, you know, that's, that's difficult for anybody to do. Right, do you think adding more teams will boost the fan numbers who turn out for the games at the stadiums? Well, in recent years... Uh, the fans since 2000, probably 13, uh, during the World Baseball Classic. And then uh, Manny Ramirez, he came and played um, half a season here in Taiwan. Since that point, it kind of revived and recuperated the CPBL to where last year, you know, 
uh, attendance, the average attendance was over 6,000 uh, fans. New teams, I definitely think, will spark new interest, um, especially if you consider where um, this new team is located. The obvious choice would probably be Kaohsiung, um, the second largest city in Taiwan. They have a, um, they already have a stadium there, Chenjinghu, and so they have the resources to to be able to to support a team. The government hasn't been too keen in the past in supporting a team, so that's that's one hurdle there. But I definitely think overall it's the right time. But again, back in 2012, 2013, when um, attendance was at an all-time high, you didn't see any new companies coming in there uh, or buying up new, uh, starting a new team. So if it didn't happen back then, uh, you, one has to wonder why it would happen now. And again, I think it's mainly the, the financial investment. All right, if, if you had a bit of time frame on when we could see new teams in the league, at least one, when would that be? So it, it's a three-year time frame. So at the quickest, it would be uh, 2020. Uh, next year, 2018, the new team would um, participate in the draft. Uh, so they would draft their players. Uh, the following year, 2019, they'd have to play one year in the minors system. Um, and then the following year, 2020, they could then join the, the CPBL, the majors, the, the other four teams. That was me in conversation with Clive Shu of CPBL English. And that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio this evening by Jane Rickards. Thanks, Gavin. Good evening. And Klaus Bagenhagen. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.